Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Once upon a time on this here program, I had a regular guest every fortnight, roughly. Fleur Kilpatrick would come in and she and I would review and critique work that we had seen on Melbourne stages, main stage, independent and more. Then Fleur went and became the artistic director of a regional company based in South Australia. And sadly, we had to end those conversations. But Fleur is also a playwright and has a work on being presented by Lab Kelpie at Monash Performing Arts Centre. It's called Rebel, and Fleur joins me in the studio now to tell us all about it. And good morning. Lovely to have you back. Good morning. Actually in the studio with you. It's so weird and beautiful. Just before we talk about this new work, tell us what you've been doing. Oh, my gosh, just everything. Art has... So I run Riverland Youth Theatre. Art has never felt so urgent but it's like this urgent need for joy the kids talk a lot about needing something to look forward to so that's a lot of what I do I drive around in what my teenagers call the gay bus Um, it actually has an emergency wig in the glove box in case things get too straight for them Um, and we drive I drive around the region and work with kids from age three weeks to (laughs) to grown-ups um doing a lot to try and build some joy and resilience in them. I work a lot with genderqueer teenagers. That's a really big part. I, you know, every week at the moment I'm having someone come up to me and be like, I think I've got one of your kids. It's like, they've just come out there. (laughs) Um, I'm like, yep, send them to me, they're mine. Um, So doing a lot of care for very vulnerable young people in the region and um, uh, we have a Aboriginal youth group as well or run with, Aboriginal artists. We have um, groups in multiple towns. We have painting and puppet making and some Minecraft theatre coming up soon. So um, I'm doing a lot. It's massive and joyful and urgent. Urgent is one of those words that gets bandied around a lot, but what you've just said reinforces the way that theatre and the performing arts and art generally can be literally a lifeline for people, particularly in in regional and rural areas. Yeah, it absolutely feels like that. I have some kids who sometimes can't go to school because of their anxiety and they come to us instead. Um, And if they can, get out of bed. They can't always. But if they can, they'll come in and play some board games or something like that instead. Um, Yeah, I've absolutely pulled over at the side of the road in the middle of the bush to... um, walk a kid through a panic attack, things like that. So it's very, I am very acutely aware that part of my job is to keep some kids alive, you know, yeah. and, that, and that these days I feel like a community worker whose tool is art and it's this great multi-tool, it's there in the back pocket, like so many kids I meet and I'm like, oh, yeah, I've got an art for that. Yeah, <laughs> let's go build a pillow fort, let's go. <laughs> when you're doing all of this, how do you find time to be a playwright? Because... Your mm. new work, Rebel, which is on uh, on Wednesday the 3rd of August out at the Ian Potter Perform- uh, Centre for Performing Arts uh, at Monash, this is a, a new play. Yeah, so I wrote most of it, though, during COVID before I started this job 
today I'm going to have one day in the studio <laughs> to do some rewrites and make it make sense for this newest version. So fortunately I work very fast when I have the time, but essentially uh, in answer to how, how do I find time, I don't. That's okay. I'm one year into running Riverland Youth Theatre and I knew that that first year would always be huge. And now that I've hit the one year mark, things are feeling different. I'm starting to be able to put into place some different methodologies. We've got a really significant grant to be able to get a new artist for the next three years as well. So um, hopefully things will change and it will become, you know, sustainability for me in terms of sustainable practice doesn't necessarily mean everything's easy all the time. A new year one of running a new company in a vulnerable community would be tough. Um, now I'm through that one year, I'm looking forward to hopefully carving out some more time for, for myself as well. We were just talking about urgency. This yes. is a play about people who believe they need to be personally involved mm. with a range of urgent issues. We're talking a play about activists, but in particular senior activists. Mm. Often there's a focus on young people, school strikes, which is an important part of the activist spectrum. But tell us about your decision to focus on senior activists in writing this play, Rebel. Yeah, well, I just kept meeting them <laughs> and they kept being fascinating and beautiful humans. So I just, I wanted to share them was part of it. But also that focus on the school strikes, I think, um, can at times be really lonely for those kids. I am very aware that a lot of young people feel that it's all up to them and I kind of, in writing this piece, I really wanted to show them that there are other people who are with them, some of whom have been doing it for 30 years, some of them just, you know, I've got one guy in the play who um, got arrested for the first time at 74, you know, so there's people um, with them and they don't have to shoulder the burden on their own. Um, it's also really interesting to me because that is a generation that cops a lot of blame and, you know, rightly so. And they talk about that in Rebel as well and, like, looking around and expecting someone, being like, someone's going to stand up soon and then going, oh, that was me, I, I didn't. Oh. So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting generation to look at climate change um, with. So we're talking about people like the Knitting Nanas Against Gas and uh -huh. Greed, for example. We're talking about the grandparents of Extinction Rebellion in WA. People who have, as you say, have realised that they have to stand up because perhaps no-one else is, certainly none of their mm. political leaders. Um, uh, and also a reminder that that spirit of protest that we associate with the Vietnam moratorium, for mm. example, and the marches of the 60s. There are lots of people who, for whom that spirit of protest was a brief moment and then they got on with their lives. Mm. And these are people who have maintained the rage, to use a, an old kind of a Labour Party slogan. Yeah, a lot of them. There are absolutely people in this play who've been doing it for 30 years. Um, Isla Quito, who I spoke to, she's um, the head of uh, Queensland Rainforest Conservation. She's saved 15,000 square kilometres of Queensland rainforest. She's been doing it for, you know, the good 30, 40 years. Um, one of my favourite questions to ask these folks when I interviewed them was always like, what was your first protest? And it's like this beautiful history of Australian protest when like, you can view Australia 
through the lens of a history of protest in a way as well. And that's really cool and exciting and going like, oh, the Franklin Dam. There was a lot of Franklin Dam that got mentioned a lot. Um, mine personally was a very South Australian one, which was when there was talk about building uh, the, the bridge being built to, um, to High Marsh, Marsh Island. And I remember the march of like, don't build the bridge, it will divide us and stuff as a very little kid. Um, so it's a really interesting thing. Some of them though went and got very respectable jobs where they had to not be trouble, <laughs> frankly. And so there's a number of them who are absolutely loving being retired and getting to now mess some stuff up and glue their hands to the windows of banks and sit in the middle of a road. Um, the first time I saw the grandparents of the Extinction Rebellion, it was just a photo of a protest. And in the middle of this protest was these bunch of oldies sitting there having a cup of tea. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I want to chat to those guys. Yeah. So you've written a play about these people, mm -hmm. but you've also inserted yourself as a character into the play, I believe. Yeah, well, it was kind of hard to avoid because I this place started when I was up in Springbrook Rainforest um, in November 2019 and the closest fire to me at that time was five kilometres away. So, and at that time I was like, great, I'm going to spend this next year travelling Australia talking to elderly people about protest. <laughs> like, come on, let's do it 2020. And, of course, 2020 had other plans. So... It can't be avoided, the context in which I'm making this. And activists are very in the moment as well. They're talking about it too. So it was hard to avoid the fact that this was a journey through a year from, from bushfires in November through COVID hitting and the last act is on Zoom, you know, because <laughs> that's where we had to be. And but just, and it was also just really interesting because suddenly old old people became vulnerable and these people that we were doing this for and they, up to the very second before COVID hit, they were the ones, you know, camping out all night on the steps of Parliament and, like, the opposite of what you'd think of as vulnerable. But um, so it was really interesting as well. Ageing and ageing bodies became a different thing in the year of COVID too. So I really wanted to... I don't think you can make work about climate change without sort of acknowledging when and where you're making it. It's place and time is really important. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I was in that place and time as well, you know. Um, any vulnerability, any sense of vulnerability from you about not only a new work being presented but putting yourself into it? Yeah, I mean, always, but um, I don't know. I'm a chatty lady, <laughs> love a chat. Um, so always um, I love sharing and it's part of my art form is, is to, to share where I'm at. Um, it is a strange thing to be presented at Monash, honestly, because I was a lecturer there for the last five years and lost my job there during COVID as, um, you know, thousands upon thousands of lecturers and university staff did. So um, that's probably the thing I feel most weird and vulnerable about, um, in all honesty, is just being like, wow, my play is... We're sending my words back to that space where I feel kind of exiled from, um, with the word rebel next to it, you know, <laughs> as well. So it's a 
So it's a weird thing. What is also intriguing about Rebel, it's being presented by Lad Kelpie, mm-hmm. uh, who are a fantastic kind of independent theatre company. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your hopes for the production and the creative team. Yeah, so it's been on such a journey because I wrote it expecting it to go on last year and I wrote a version of it to be entirely online and a version to be live thinking I've COVID-proofed it and then um, Monash was like, no, actually, we really want the live version. We really want want that version. And so we paused. So it's... I'm really excited to see what it will be. I'm not performing this one. I initially wrote it for me to perform. So I am getting in the space today with an actor and figuring out what it means to have this work that is so personal performed by someone else. And I'm so excited about that, honestly, because in a way it's part of the journey of the work is that actually COVID and all those moments led to me now running (laughs) Riverland Youth Theatre and now being too busy looking after all my kitties to come and perform this myself. So in a way that's part of the journey and almost part of the victory of of the last couple of years is that I'm no longer available to perform it. So I'm really interested in how I can make that a special element of the work and not like, oh, dear, we couldn't get Fleur. Like, I never want it to not be the ideal version that people are seeing. So I'm very excited to play today and figure out how to make this the best version. It's a new play. You're handing it over to somebody else to play you in the play. You're handing it over to a a creative team, a Mm -hmm. a director, and a cast of older actors who are playing these elderly, passionate, committed activists and protesters. Yeah. So um, that was an absolute joy, working with those older actors. So we actually worked with them last year and recorded their parts. Um, And... It was just wonderful. I mean, between them, uh, two of them had actually last performed together about 40 years ago. Um, So that was just so beautiful to have an opportunity to bring in all that expertise. There was definitely some memory issues to work with. Um, Not for all of them, but there was a few of them. There was one where I was um, holding up, you know, holding up lines written on very large butcher's paper. for the performer, um, but, uh, yeah, the ex- and this actually spoke to how good an actor that performer was, that you cannot tell that he is reading those lines and that he's had a really weird day of discovering his memory isn't where he thought he was because he was really thrown by that. But he's such a good actor, you can't hear that in his voice at all. He's beautiful. Um, so, yeah, working with and, um, and a lot of these actors also said... Um, they're so used to being playing people on their deathbeds and <laughs> frail folks and it was really special for them to get to play rebels. And, and some of them are rebels. The two in the middle act are both in Extinction Rebellion and are out there gluing themselves to pavements. So that was really special as well. The future is in safe hands. Yeah, absolutely. There's one story I think that didn't make it in but one of the Knitting Nanas Against Gas, her grandson said at one point went off on a holiday with his mum and there was rubbish on the beach and he said, oh, Nana wouldn't let this happen. And that's the thing I keep holding on to, just like Nana wouldn't let this happen. There's a generation growing up that knowing that their grandparents are fighting for them. 
Fleur Kilpatrick's play Rebel is being presented by Lab Kelpie at the Ian Potter Centre for Performing Arts 48 Exhibition Walk Clayton out at Monash Uni on Wednesday the 3rd of August, so one show only at 7pm in the David Lee Sound Gallery at the Ian Potter Centre for Performing Arts. Tickets 20 to 30 bucks, and you can find out more info by going to www.monash.edu forward slash performing hyphen arts hyphen centres. Maybe just Google... Ian Potter Centre Performing Arts Rebel. That might be easier than uh, trying to write down a URL. Fleur Kilpatrick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. So lovely to see you again. You too. Oh, my gosh. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Miranda Hill is a classically trained musician uh, and is the artistic director of Homophonic, which... Every year uh, has been presenting some superb concerts as part of Midsummer Festival at uh, La Mama at the Courthouse uh, and also presenting works at some of the other queer cultural festivals across the state, if and when COVID allows. And Miranda, you're continuing the work of the company and the ensemble of musicians you work with and the commissions that you uh, are responsible for, for helping going to bring about with a new concert as part of the Leaps and Bounds Music Festival. Yes, hello Richard. Um, we are, it's, I mean, homophonic in the, the in the winter, it's like Christmas in July, everything has come full, full circle, so we're presenting as part, it's a project called the Respect Project, it's a group of works that we've been commissioning over, well, I think since 2019, as we all have been. Um, There's been some world premieres in 2022, but then new works written by queer composers inspired by conversations with and the lives of older members of our queer LGBTIQ plus community. And there's five works written for voices and strings, and we cry every time, every time. They're so beautiful. (laughs) Um, But I'm really proud to present these works together. It's, It's we don't... Art music is very has a real representation problem. We present mostly works by dead German white men, um, is mostly the works we play, but also the stories we tell are generally a very small set of stories, and the Respect Project is about redressing that balance because all of our stories deserve to be told and deserve to be written down and sung out loud, in this case, by a stunning six-voice choir of the Consort of Melbourne. I love the fact that I've literally only a couple of minutes ago uh, been speaking to the playwright uh, Fleur Kilpatrick about her new play, which is focused on seniors who are activists uh, in the community and focused on environmental change. And now we segue beautifully uh, into celebrating queer seniors as well. Talk to us about kind of where the Respect Project began in terms of going, how do we fuse contemporary classical music, contemporary art music, with the stories of uh, queer elders who were doing remarkable things and who should be celebrated? I mean, it was a, it was a given, wasn't it? It was, it was definitely going to happen at some point. But I think it's because Homophonic is so committed to celebrating queer stories and, and actually the smaller parts of our lives. So, yes, the big moments, the big, the famous moments of the famous composers, but also the small minute of everyday lives that, that we live and those, those lives are important. And, and we only... History is told by those who write it down. 
and there's an element of particularly of queer cultural history that is not passed down around an intergenerational dinner table in the same way that some other cultural history can be passed down. So if we want to remember the stories, not just the stories that, you know, Hollywood deems to be shiny enough to put on a screen, but if we want to remember all the stories, then we have to write them down. And this is the art form that I have at my disposal. But the five people that we've worked with, you said people doing amazing things. Some of the five stories are people doing amazing things, and some of them are just people living out their lives. Then they're beautiful lives and they're amazing lives. But all stories, yeah, that's where the respect, it's respect your elders, but also remember these, remember these stories, remember that these lives existed. And one of the things that I think is important to pick up there is that, yes, on one scale, these were people living or these are people who are living ordinary lives. They're, they're not the great famous queer activists, for example. But to be a queer person in the 1950s, in the 1960s, in regional Australia in the 1970s, for example, to, to be strong enough to survive that, to live through the AIDS pandemic, those are remarkable stories. Those are remarkable stories. Yeah, you're very right. And there's one work, actually, um, Satan by Naima Fine, which, interestingly, is... is inspired by a conversation between um, Rick Youssef, who was an, uh, I think he's in his, well, I don't want to give an age, an older, an older member of the Ballarat community, and Sage Akuri, who is a much younger person who has recently moved to the area, and they're talking about the difference between being a visibly queer person in Ballarat now and in the 70s. Um, and it's, it's a work that has you know, and it focuses on that of holding, of the act of holding hands when you're walking down the street, and how that was an act of protest. And now the younger sage, the younger person doesn't think twice about it, but Rick still does. Um, but it, it's actually a beautiful work because it ends with this thing, but the future is in safe hands. You know, we are. All this work has been done, and I see. You know, Rick is seeing that that the work that he did, and he did work very strongly. Um, a lot of activist work in the AIDS pandemic um, worked very strongly in that area and he's also a, a queer Muslim man um, and passing on that lineage to the younger activists and Sage is, is a trans activist working that into the, you know, the future is in safe hands and putting that story into music, um, string quintet and six voices is really, it's, it's a very powerful work to perform as a queer person. Miranda, how do you pair the, the people whose stories are being told with the composers who are creating a body of music in which to present their story? Introduce them via email. It's the true, it's the true pandemic way of working. Um, all of these five works, as you said, have been... Uh, uh, they were written for the five regional Victorian Pride Festivals. And so they're all about regional people who are living regionally. And I reached out to the festivals and said, this is what we're doing. This is the project we have. Can you suggest someone who has a good story to tell? And so they brought people forward and we gained, they suggested people. I've had some amazing chats with people, but... I leave it up to the composer and the performer. Have a chat to the person, think of the composer that's the right fit and uh, leave them to it. And we have a very diverse set of works. We have, you know, Safe Hands, which is very Ballarat-focused, 
and we have another work that is a high-spirited romp on the seas about a cruise ship getting stuck in a cyclone. Um, there are, <laughs> there's a very diverse group because everybody is so... All of these people have such different stories to tell. But I really leave it up to the interaction between the composer and the person who's the, you know, inspiring the work. Um, and that cross-generational queer collaboration, which is another really beautiful thing that's come out of this project. These kind of artistic cross-generational collaborations have been really lovely to watch witness and to watch them flourish as well. The work is being performed by the uh, homophonic string quintet and the six-member consort of Melbourne, uh, who are the the vocal kind of addition. Uh, Also, a little bit of piano and piano accordion. Yes, yes. We can't. I mean, can you can you do a sea shanty with a piano without a piano accordion? I'm not sure if you can. So it's <laughs> just a smattering of piano accordion. Unless unless it's being done a cappella, I suspect not. Yeah. And so this is all happening. Uh, yes. Oh, sorry. Keep going. No, I was about to go to the same place you were supposed to go, the Leaps and Bounds Festival at the Fitzroy Town Hall Reading Room on Sunday evening. This Sunday evening. Now, it's a beautiful space in which to uh, experience any kind of conversation, uh, artwork, etc. But it feels particularly suited to contemporary art music. When we say contemporary art music, do you think saying that, saying contemporary classical music will scare people off, including classical music aficionados who may go, oh, contemporary, no, that's not for me. Oh, possibly, possibly, but I guarantee it is for you. If you're listening, I think you will enjoy it. Uh, it's a very, yeah, contemporary, all we mean by that is it, it's, it's music that's being written now that's coming from the class, classical tradition, um, using classical instruments and classically trained voices. Uh, but contem- contemporary art music and, and classical music is a living, evolving art form and it's a really effective way of telling stories classical music and, and song well classical music's been used to tell stories and have stories written down for 200 300 years but song of course has been used for the 40 50,000 years to keep stories alive it's a really visceral and human way to tell our stories as a community. And when we say contemporary art music, we just mean the modern version of that. To book four, Homophonics, uh, the Respect Project, as part of the Leaps and Bounds Music Festival. Uh, It is happening this Sunday, the 24th of July, 7.30pm, at the Fitzroy Town Hall Reading Room, uh, diagonally over the road from the Napier Hotel, if you're familiar with that pub, uh, 201 Napier Street, (laughs) Fitzroy. Tickets are $20 plus booking fee or $10 concession plus booking fee. So very, very cheap. Um, And you can go to the Leaps and Bounds Music Festival website for details, www.lbmf.com.au to book to see uh, Homophonic presenting the Respect Project. And I'm also, uh, uh, believe, Miranda, that you're performing at another gig as part of Leaps and Bounds called Croissants and Whiskey. Croissants and Whiskey, yes. Uh, a prog, it's a debut concert of a prog baroque quartet. So all new music written on, but written for Baroque 
instruments. We've got a harpsichord and a giovinelli and baroque recorders, which sounds nothing like the recorders that you played in primary school. Um, Ryan Williams is a is a genius of them and a baroque viola, but we have uh, some folk music in there. But there's a new work that. ABC Commissioning Fund, which is a series of Lebanese wedding dances uh, written by Australian composer Elizabeth Yunan, written for Baroque Quartet, and it is a riotous whirl. It is so much fun. Yeah, I think there will also be croissants and whiskey. Excellent. So, <laughs> so I, I thought I should just give that a quick plug. So croissants and whiskey, uh, yes. Saturday, this Saturday, the 23rd of July, 2pm to 3.30pm, again at the Fitzroy Town, Hall, yes. Fitzroy Town Hall Reading Room, 201 Napier Street, Fitzroy. And Homophonic presenting The Respect Project at Leaps and Bounds is on this Sunday night at 7.30pm, again in the Fitzroy Town Hall Reading Room. Miranda Hill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Triple R. The Australian Centre for the Moving Image, ACME, is currently hosting the exhibition Light, Works from Tate's Collection. And I'm joined in the studio by Laura Castanini, who's going to tell us all about it. But, Laura, when I think of exhibitions at ACME, I often tend to think of exhibitions focused literally on the moving image, on cinema, for example, on a particular filmmaker or um, a video, a large screen video work. This is a different exhibition uh, in that regard. It's not focused on the moving image, but it's focused on something that informs the moving image. Films are made by shining a light through uh, originally a strip of celluloid. Uh, obviously technology has changed. So light is fundamental to the moving image. Is that one of the reasons why this exhibition, Light Works from the Tate's Collection, is a good fit for ACME? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. <laughs> um, so we've taken the theme of light um, really broadly as one of the building blocks of cinema and broadened it out art historically. So starting to think about what is so ineffable, what is so fascinating about light that has captured artists across time, across generations, across the country, um, to try and capture this and visualise this this thing. Um, Warwick Thornton uh, put it really beautifully, talking about how, you know, light is... It's the campfire and then it's also the LED. It's like a... Um, I think he called it, like, nature's cinema or something. <laughs> it's sort of like a... Um, yeah, something that we're so drawn to as humans. Um, so what this exhibition does is it takes works from Tate's collection, which are exploring themes of light from Turner from the 18th century right up until the present day, um, really expanding on on what light is. And this is sort of part of ACME's um, sort of new new mission and thinking about the new exhibition, the story of the moving image, and that way that it pulls apart what what the moving image is and looks at it in lots of different angles. So it's sort of the first show that we're doing that will um, pick apart uh, the moving image in that way. Yeah. The the inclusion of works by, uh, by Turner, by Constable, by Monet, for example, um, all artists who, whose work is suffused with light in mm -hmm. such a, a palpable and potent way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the exhibition takes light and looks at it from so many different uh, angles. And it starts with, with Turner, as we talked about, um, looking at the religious and the divine as a, as a form of um, uh, art making in the 18th century, then looks at um, 
you know, natural light as captured by Constable, sublime light as captured by um, John Martin, but then also the way that contemporary artists have responded to these themes or expanded upon these themes. So, for example, while Constable is looking at natural light in this particular way as very sort of observational and trying to capture things really, like, almost scientifically, in the same way Tassida Dean is doing very, very long, lengthy shots uh, in 16mm of uh, seascape and the and the lighthouse in St Abbs in northern England. So what the show does is it very sort of elegantly, I think, and I didn't curate it, it was curated by Tate, so I'm allowed to say that it's elegant. Um, it draws connections uh, looking at themes with artists across time. So that's one example. Another good example would be... Um, in the in the sort of impressionist room, um, which is what I call it, there's a some really beautiful uh, impressionist paintings which are capturing the behaviour of light as it bounces off the sea, and that's also what Yoyo Kasama's The Passing Winter sculpture does in the way that it captures light as it bounces off the mirrors and um, refracts around you. And as you look in the peephole, you can see the paintings um, in the. It's quite hard work to explain, but um, it's interesting thinking about the way someone like Yayo Kasama in, in, this, in this century is looking at something in a very similar way but very different to the way that impressions were making um, centuries ago. One of the things that connects so many of the disparate images and, and objects in the exhibition is not just kind of light itself as a subject or as a, as a medium, but there's also this motif that is carried through a lot of the exhibition, um, representations of the eye or of the world or mm. spheres and peepholes. Um, there's a real conscious thread or that I certainly noticed walking mm. through the exhibition. It, it's not overt, it's not dominant, but it was a really interesting kind of way to think that this exhibition is, in some ways, it's holding up a mirror. It's saying... the. The, the very fact of how we see is light entering the eye. Uh, and in this exhibition, we have these eye-like kind of uh, spherical kind of motifs mm. echoed again and again throughout. I love that. I've, I've not heard it um, described in that way. Um, I mean, I've been thinking about those shapes in terms of lenses. So in the first room, there's the diagrams that... Um, that Turner made when he was the professor of perspective at the Royal Academy in the in the 18th century. What a great job title. I know. I'm like, I would love to be a professor of perspective. Um, and so there are these beautiful drawings of basically spheres that um, he used to teach his students about light and perception and the way that, um, the way that they could try and depict um, light. And once you... So that work leads you very nicely onto the work by Lillian Lynn, which is the first um, contemporary or modern and contemporary work in the exhibition, which also has these lenses in it, which um, I'll explain the work visually because it's a really kind of um, difficult work to wrap your head around. But you enter this darkened space and on, on the ground in front of you is a plinth with a, um, a perspex drum with water inside and a light shining on the drum which has two spherical um, perspex balls and they cast these really amazing shadows around. And Lillian Lins um, uses a very sort of poetic um, way of talking about this work. She said her, her creative aim was to capture light and keep it alive, 
within a sculpture. And she spent five years trying to do this. Um, she's a really interesting artist who, um, American artist who moved to the, the UK in the early 60s and was a really important part of the kinetic art movement in Britain during that time, one of the only women to be making work during that time. But it's, um, it's very clear when you look at that in relation to the Turner and then the other spheres that you mentioned, like in the Tacita Dean work, um, and the uh, Kasama, the more I think about it, I'm like, yeah, there are lots of spheres. <laughs> uh, Oliver... Oliver uh, Lyson, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's... It was, again, and even, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the Kasama work, which is, is that the, the, the sculptural box? Yeah. With so many different holes punctured through it that is then refracting and reflecting and again the holes you are peeping through again circles spheres kind of it, it's a motif mm. that is echoed there's even one of the i think it's a, a, a more modernist work from the 60s mm-hmm. which is a series of consent of brightly illuminated concentric circles that again yeah. kind of to me echoes the the iris the pupil yeah the, i mean maybe it would be helpful for me to explain what those two works look like so the Yayo Kasama is a um a mirror, it's kind of like a mirror plinth, like a mirrored rectangle that has peepholes cut out of it and lots of mirrors on the inside. So when you look in the, and you know, Kusama is obsessed with dots, like that's her thing. And when you look in the dots, it becomes infinite space and um, in a really kind of, I don't know, like mystical way, I would say. Um, and so you you look through these 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 holes and then you're, you see yourself reflected back and then you see the dots sort of expanding out, as I said, to infinite space and then you can see, you know, the, the Impressionist painting on the other side, which is also um, has a lot of dots in it <laughs> um, and that's how it's made. Um, and the, the Peter Sedgley is the, is the other work that you just mentioned, which um, I was really excited to see. I didn't actually know very much about Peter Sedgley. He's um, a self-taught artist and it's a... Um, it's a canvas work with spray painted concentric circles. And then there's this sort of magical thing that he invented, which is lights that shine on it. And I just sort of assumed until seeing the work that those lights would be actually moving, but they're not. They're just th- three, three different colors that then when they react with the concentric circles, make the circles look like they're moving. Um, it's a really beautiful work in the way of thinking about how light behaves in relationship to colour and extending on from artists like um, Kandinsky, whose work we have from 1927 when he was teaching at the Bauhaus and the way that he was trying to create um, colour, who used colour to sort of express movement and um, through light as well. Um, and Bridget Riley, those three works kind of work in a... Um, in a three in the way that they they all use light and colour to um, express movement but in very different ways. Now, Laura, when we think about artists who work with light, perhaps people familiar with the, the contemporary art world might immediately think of James Turrell, mm-hmm. for example, and there is a beautiful Turrell work in the exhibition. Yeah, so we've got one of his earliest um, shallow space constructions from 1968 called Raymar Blue, and it's uh, a very small room that you walk into and you are immediately sort of bathed in blue light. Um, it's a very, it's a specially designed space and there's a, um, oh, maybe I won't, re- maybe I won't uh, tell you the trick, but there's a, a beautiful um, uh, architectural 
trick that um, in in which the, um, the the way that the light emanates through the space in to create a sort of picture frame. Um, and very funnily enough, uh, this this work was um, mysteriously perhaps um, uh, referenced in Drake's Hotline Bling video. And there's been some very funny. Um, uh, media controversy around that relationship and um, Drake has said that um, he's he went to see Tarrell's exhibition and he said I don't know if I can swear on this show he said he F's with he F's with uh, with Tarrell (laughs) Um, and they've had a sort of an interesting relationship and also Kanye West is really interested in um, in Tarrell it's got like I think it's quite interesting the way that someone like James Tarrell you know who was a he was making this work in the 60s and um, he's been making this sort of work for a long time, but it's had this kind of regeneration in the last 10 years and, um, yeah, it's curious to know why that might be. It's one of the things that's fascinating about that work is that it's almost hallucinatory. Mm. Kind of the more you gaze into it, the it feels like the colour around you is shifting, that you're almost entering the work. Yeah, and the other thing is I've been thinking about is, like, when that work was made, um, like, he was... he he was a pilot and so he was thinking about blue is in the sky but now we have a very different relationship to the colour blue in relationship to our smartphones and the way, I mean, because I've been looking into, thinking thinking about someone like Derek Jarman who made the, the blue work in the early 90s. After and he went blind. Exactly. And sort of like the queer history of the colour blue and then thinking about artists like, um, for example, Sydney McMahon who had a show recently in Sydney who was... Um, also bathed the gallery in blue and I, and I asked them, like, what's this about? And they said, oh, it's sort of um, thinking about the the smartphone and the colour. Like, so it was, I think that's sort of interesting as well, the way that um, these light effects maybe continue throughout time but mean very different things. The blue screen of death, for example, which uh, is, <laughs> has a very different kind of tone to uh, to this uh, Terrell work, um, uh, Raymar Blue mm. from 1969. In terms of the exhibition itself, obviously people can uh, visit ACME, visit the exhibition. Uh, it is a ticketed exhibition, $30 full, 27 concession, 25 for members, $10 for children. Um, talk to us about some of the public programs that are being presented as well, because that's always a fascinating way, not only to learn more about the exhibition, but tangentially to explore the subject matter in a different way. Yeah, exactly. So that's been a really important part of this exhibition has been how we contextualise it within ACME because it's a touring show. Um, But the way that we've presented the public programs really situate the show within the history of the moving image. So uh, we've already had a few interesting ones. We had an art and film event focused on um, Oscar Fischinger, whose work we have currently on display in Storing of the Moving Image, who actually um, was quite influential on some of the Bauhaus artists, including... Um, my gosh, I've just had a, blame, a, a brain blank. The video artist that's in that room. <laughs> um, and that was really, really interesting to see a retrospective of his work in relation to um, in relation to this exhibition. And we've had a curator talk. We had um, the Tate curators came out in the first week, so um, I held it in conversation with Matthew that first week, which is online. Um, but in terms of what's coming up, we have monthly curator talks, but we also have um, two programs that I'm quite excited about. One is a Magic Lantern show on the 9th and 9th until the 11th of September. 
with Dr. Martin Jolly and um, Elisa de Kersey, who are going to recreate some of the 19th century uh, Magic Lantern shows, which relate to um, a similar time frame to when uh, Turner was painting religious themes and doing it in a very different way. And I'm quite interested to see the way that um, that performance can help us contextualise Turner's um, very... Uh, technical uses of light but in paint rather than um, in magic lantern slides and we're also doing a collaboration with liquid architecture on the 15th of october which will be um, an evening of uh, audiovisual performances inspired by liz rhodes's light music which is the work that's the it's a free part of the exhibition in the gallery three which is the small space um off the foyer um which is a work from 1975 which was inspired by what she considered the the lack or the gap of uh, classical of women in classical music, um, and anyway, it's a really kind of uh, loud, <laughs> um, enveloping example of expanded cinema. But we will be working with Liquid Architecture to um, to present some some local artists, uh, women and non-binary artists who are also interested in in light in this way. Light Works from the Tate's Collection is showing at ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image at Federation Square, until the 13th of November. Don't leave it to the last minute to go because you just know that it will be packed and you won't have the same kind of immersive experience. So maybe go this weekend, go next week. Uh, it's a ticketed exhibition, so jump online for details, www.acme.net.au. Open Mondays to Fridays from midday until 5pm, weekends and school holidays from 10am till 6pm. And tickets, as I said, full $30, concession 27 member 25 children 10 and then there are also uh, tickets for families, groups and education as well. Light works from the Tate's Collection. Go to www.acme.net.au for details. I've been chatting with Laura Castanini. Laura, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 